Three years ago this week, Dubliner Ibrahim Halawa was sitting his leaving cert in the Institute of Education near Stevens Green in Dublin. But by the end of summer 2013, the leaving cert was the last thing on his mind as he faced charges that included the death penalty. Egypt that summer had become a place of mass protest, civil unrest and government crackdowns. Shortly after his leave insert, 17-year-old Ibrahim left the family home in Furhouse, Dublin and travelled to Egypt with his mother and three sisters. Twelve months later, Ibrahim would be sitting in a jail cell with journalist and Australian national Peter Gresta. The door swings open with no warning and this Egyptian-looking guy walks in and with his sort of slight Irish accent, it made no sense whatsoever. It was a very weird weird kind of contradiction until he explained, he introduced himself. Uh, it was Ibrahim Halawa. Until now, Peter has remained largely tight-lipped about Ibrahim's case. His reasoning was simple. Knowing what he knows about the Egyptian justice system, he feared speaking out may do more harm than good. But now, ahead of Ibrahim's June 29th court hearing, Peter Gresta wants for the first time to tell his story behind bars with Ibrahim Halawa. You know, he and I are very different characters. Um, I like him a lot, not the kind of people that we would, who would naturally gravitate to one another if we were outside of prison. But, you know, I, I, came, to, I came to like him. This story begins in 1995. In Ireland, it was the warmest summer on record. That December, US President Bill Clinton visited Dublin and spoke to 80,000 people in College Green. On December 13th in the nearby Coombe Hospital, a baby boy was born to Egyptian parents Hussein and Amina Halawa. He was the youngest of seven children and his name was Ibrahim. That same year, Peter Gresta was 30 years old and working as a conflict correspondent for the BBC in Afghanistan. And it was my first proper foreign assignment, my first proper job as a war correspondent, as a conflict correspondent. So it was a full-on full on war zone. And then the Taliban came through, and so we saw the emergence of the Taliban. You know, that, that year was incredibly important to me professionally and personally because I learned, I learned a lot about the kinds of stories that you needed to do, about how to move around, how to, how to work and how to stay alive, most importantly. It was a really important year. Over the next 20 years and until his arrest in Egypt, in December 2013, Peter worked as a correspondent for Reuters, the BBC and Al Jazeera, winning praise for his work from the front lines. Throughout that same period, Ibrahim Halawa grew up in the southwest Dublin suburb of Furhouse, just off the M50. He went to the local Holy Rosary National School, before going on to the fee-paying secondary schools of Rockbrook in Rockfarnham and then the Institute of Education on Leeson Street for his leave insert. Growing up, Ibrahim regularly travelled to Egypt. It was the country of his family's heritage, but his life and his friends were based in Dublin. Less than a month after Ibrahim finished his leave insert, he was speaking on stage in Cairo at an Egyptians Abroad for Democracy rally. It is this conflicted identity that has marked out Ibrahim's case 
from the very beginning. Ibrahim and his three sisters were arrested on Friday, August 16th, 2013. Just two days later, he should have been celebrating an offer to study engineering in Trinity. But he was making headlines here at home. Well, the trauma of Egypt continues with more violence over the weekend, though the focus has shifted to the fates of the four Halawa siblings arrested in the Al-Fatah Mosque on Saturday. They're the children of the Imam at the Klonski Mosque. Before that news emerged, we spoke to journalist Rebecca Collard in Cairo. I asked her what she knew of the situation and the fate of the Halawa family. They were among the protesters inside the mosque when security forces stormed it on Saturday and they were taken into custody along with a number of other people. And now we know that the Irish authorities have been in contact with Egyptian authorities and have confirmed that these people are in detention. Saturday, as I arrived, things were a bit calm and then all of a sudden uh, a barrage of gunfire um, outside of the mosque and eventually... After their arrest, all four Halawa siblings were loaded into lorries. Ibrahim's three sisters would spend three months in prison before being released. However, Ibrahim was charged along with 493 others with offences reported as murder, attempted murder and participating in an illegal protest. Ibrahim was already five months in prison when Peter Gresta arrived in Egypt in December 2013. Within days of Peter's arrival, protests intensified when the former government party, the Muslim Brotherhood, was declared a terrorist organisation. Friday was always going to be a day of confrontation, a test of will between Egypt's anti-government protesters and the police. It came two days after the government declared the Muslim Brotherhood to be a terrorist group. The Interior Ministry warned that anyone who joins protests supporting the Brotherhood would be imprisoned for five years on charges of promoting terrorist ideology. The Muslim Brotherhood are a political organisation who promote Islam as a way of life and not just a religion. They've been accused of using violence to oppose Western influence. The government's crackdown on the Brotherhood was aimed at dealing with what officials here believe to be a threat to state security and national stability. But if these confrontations continue as the protesters promise, it may well have had the opposite effect. Peter Gresta, Al Jazeera, Cairo. Just two days later, Peter found out that he was deemed a threat to state security and national stability when someone knocked on his hotel room door. What unfolded led him to a jail cell with Ibrahim Halawa. I opened, cracked open the door and even before I could pull it open, it was shoved in. Um, and I was pushed back by, by these pile of guys who, who tumbled into the room. I don't know how many there were. It, it felt like a lot. Um, they pushed me back across the room, asked me if I'm Peter Grasta. My name is Mr. Peter, and I said, yes, who are you? And they didn't respond. There was, they were completely silent. There was a lot of discussion in Arabic. Um, the guy obviously in charge of them uh, was issuing orders, and they went through quite quietly but very efficiently, searching the room, searching all of my equipment. Um, and I kept demanding to know who they were. There was a guy among them in the team with the camera who kept filming everything, filming me, filming the equipment that I had. I kept demanding who, to know who they were, whether they were police, whether they had a warrant. All the guys said is, can you read Arabic? And I 
said, no, of course not. And, and he said, well, then you won't be able to, to read it. And I said, well, find me someone who can, who, can, who can interpret. And then march me with all the equipment out of the room. They said, you come with us. Association with the Muslim Brotherhood surrounded the arrest of both Ibrahim Halawa and Peter Gresta. In Peter's case, a police recording of his arrest was played on Egyptian TV. And you just tell me anything of you. You can read Arabic? Arabic. You can read Arabic or Then find someone who can interpret from you. This is how Egyptian television conveyed the interrogation of Peter Gresta and his colleagues. Peter was arrested with two other Al Jazeera colleagues and charged with spreading false news and aiding the newly outlawed Muslim Brotherhood. When Ibrahim Alawa arrived in Egypt in mid-June 2013, the Muslim Brotherhood had been in power for a year. They were the country's first democratically elected government, and many believed it was the beginning of a new era for Egypt. In July 2013, within weeks of Ibrahim's arrival, the Brotherhood was overthrown by the Egyptian military. In the midst of this upheaval, Ibrahim and his sisters joined pro-democracy marches opposing the new military regime. The question everyone back in Ireland was asking was, what were they doing there in the first place? Naseba Halawa, Ibrahim's older sister, she was left to answer those questions. Can I ask you, your uh, siblings, why did they go to Egypt? Why were they in Egypt in the first place? In the first place, they went, they went before everything started, before that all started. They went before the coup happened. Okay, they went for a regular summer holiday. And when the coup happened and everything started, they started to, because two of them is a digital media, they started to went and re- trying to record and trying to show the people what's happening in there. They tried to show, to show the people that this is a protest, that no one, it's not, no one uh, holding a gun or anything in it. It's just a peaceful protest. So their sympathies lie with the Muslim Brotherhood, would that be correct? No, no, they wanted democracy and freedom. It doesn't, it's not with the brotherhood or no brotherhood. It's democracy and freedom. ...to allow more time for investigations to be completed. The detention of four Irish citizens in a foreign country wasn't just a news story. It became a diplomatic issue for the Irish government and the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Eamon Gilmore. This is a difficult situation. Um, uh, it is uh, receiving the highest priority in the embassy in, uh, in Cairo. Uh, I'm being kept directly informed uh, of uh, developments and we are in regular contact with the, the family here now uh, because my, my primary concern, obviously, is for the welfare of four Irish citizens. My understanding is, is that the uh, conditions are as good as can be expected, um, uh, but again, not, you know... Uh, uh, not a pleasant place uh, to um, to be. Eamon Gilmore was right when he said it wasn't a pleasant place to be. Just last week, on June 2nd, 2016, after more than a thousand days in the Egyptian prison system, a letter from Ibrahim was smuggled out of jail and printed in the Irish edition of the Times newspaper, read here by a Dublin teenager. I wake up every morning to the screams of prisoners being tortured and the echo of the bar landing on their bodies. We sleep here on the ground on folded bed covers in a cell with a big black heavy safe door. The room is three and a half metres by five and a half metres 
with very old paint and three windows with bars, metal and wire. In the winter it's freezing and in the summer you die. During sandstorms you breathe dust. The cell can have as many as 40 people in it as it was before, but now we are 12. Currently I'm only eating fruit, so I'm very weak and I don't move much. There are many ways I've been mistreated. Cursing, beatings, solitary confinement, the tank, convicts and the sweeper. Head shaving, hunger strike, stripped, beaten with the back of an AK-47, guns pointed at my chest, sleeping on the ground, robbery and many more. You might be wondering how some of these letters make it to the outside world. That's a question that Australian journalist Peter Gresta can answer. I don't quite know, I don't know exactly how Ibrahim managed, but, but I know I, I wrote letters on, on toilet paper. You know, the, the guards would always give you a pat-down search, a fairly close pat-down search whenever they, before you, before you went out for prison visits. You know, they'd check your ears and the hems of your clothing and, you know, give you a solid search all over your body. But they were also a little bit squeamish about getting too intimate with the searches. And so I found, I found that if you wrote a letter on, on toilet paper and rolled it up quite tightly and then put it down inside your underwear, the guards, if they felt up there, then it wouldn't have felt completely out of place. And so that was how I managed to get them out. And, and you know, in the visit, you'd, you'd make a move as if to scratch your, scratch your groin and slip out the, the roll and, and palm it over to, to um, the family member. During his first 300 days in prison and ahead of his first trial date, on August 12, 2014, Ibrahim Alawa's mother visited her son most Tuesdays in the maximum security Scorpion Prison on the outskirts of Cairo. Throughout this time, Ibrahim also received numerous visits from Irish embassy officials in Egypt, including the Irish ambassador. An Irish citizen goes on trial in Egypt today, although the word trial doesn't convey how different the hearing will be from what we understand by that word. Ibrahim Ilawa from Dublin, who's 18, will be in court with another 482 defendants. His sister, Samaya, is with me now. Good morning and welcome. Um, does he know what he's charged with? As I said before, um, you know, Ibrahim has been charged. Um, they keep saying that he's charged, but there's no actual papers that's actually, um, especially that the embassy... Um, has asked for many times for papers to, for his file to look through, but there are... Because Ibrahim was part of a mass trial, scenes in the courtroom were chaotic. The accused were all held in cages and dressed in white prison uniforms. And in an Egyptian courtroom, it was difficult to pick out the Dublin teenager from the crowd. That first trial date descended into farce when the judge walked out. By now... Charlie Flanagan was the Irish Foreign Affairs Minister tasked with the case. The following day, he spoke with Mary Wilson on drive time. Uh, and there are uh, a number of specific concerns uh, arising out of his detention. Firstly, he was a minor. He was only 17 when he was arrested. No specific charges have been laid against him. There has been a long delay prior to trial. He is one of uh, almost 500 um, people who are charged in general terms with involvement in street riots and criminal behaviour. 
I think it's essential, and uh, I say this uh, as somebody, Mary, who doesn't wish to interfere uh, in the jurisdiction of another state, but I am I'm very much concerned uh, at a number of issues surrounding the trial. I've spoken on two occasions. Shortly after his first trial, Ibrahim Alawa was moved from Scorpion Prison to Torah Prison, and that's where he met Peter Gresta, who by now had been eight months in jail. Ibrahim knew who he was before they even met. Obviously, I'd never heard of him before. knew nothing about him. Um, he came in with you know, his clothes and stuff, a few, the, few, the tiny the few possessions that he had. We made room for him. We organised a bed for him. He was speaking Arabic, obviously, to everybody else in the cell, but then he and I had a chat and he explained his situation. You know, he told me how he'd been arrested, how he was inside the mosque, the mosque siege, about how the siege went on for several days, about how they were surrounded and and eventually raided and how he was arrested and thrown into prison. You know, how he was, at that point, getting incredibly frustrated um, and depressed, but also relieved to have been moved because I think he felt that being, by being moved into prison along with us... Both the conditions had improved, but also it showed that that some of the pressure um, on the authorities was beginning to work, that they they recognised that he needed to be treated with some with some respect. Can you give me a sense of what his incarceration was like prior to his move? You know, I'm relaying conversations that go back almost two years now, but I know that he was talking about being in very crowded conditions, sometimes being beaten by the guards, abused by the guards. You know, the conversations we had from other people who went through Scorpion were any indication um, they were tough conditions, more open cages than prison cells. They were pretty crowded, having to sleep on the floor, people always talking about rodents and cockroaches, rats, cockroaches and so on that were always present around, around the prison. You're locked up inside a box for 23 hours a day. Did you develop a rapport straight away? Um, yeah, you know, his, uh, Ibrahim, for, for most of that year, he hadn't spoken English, and I think he was just really pleased to be with some English-speaking guys, and, and you know, he, it was good for him to, to talk to me in English, and we spoke a lot about what he'd been up to and, you know, how he'd... You know, his life back in Ireland, um, obviously... A young kid trying to find his way, trying to get a sense of purpose. Um, it was hard, you know. He's a young young guy who was losing some of the most important years of his life, his, his particularly his education. And so he felt that his his right to freedom of speech was being stomped on, that he was being imprisoned because he was simply expressing the way he felt. You know, in that respect, we all felt a certain kinship. I felt we were in, in prison for much the same reason. Inside the prison cell, the Australian journalist and the Irish student were living to the same soundtrack. So the, the, the sort of whirring of the fans was a, was a constant. Um, the cells are very large, cavernous places, so they tend to echo quite a lot. People turn around, you can hear the sound of beds at night. People moving, talking, um, walking out in the corridor outside the cell. 
Um, there's a mosque outside the prison with some fairly loud speakers and you could hear that, hear the call to prayer five times a day. Sometimes you'd hear the guards changing, changing over, uh, orders being issued and so on. Whilst Peter took Ibrahim under his wing, it was the younger of the two who put a fitness programme in place towards the end of 2014. Obviously, there, as I said, there were about a dozen people in the cell at the time. And so we, well, we all each had our own ways of coping. We each developed our own ways of, of dealing with it. I would get up in the morning fairly early, very early. In fact, I tried to wake generally around 6 o'clock, 5.36, and meditate for an hour. The, the cell was opened up um, into the corridor around 8 o'clock each morning, and so as soon as the cell opened, I'd go out and pound up and down the corridor. Uh, it's about 25 metres long, 25, 30 metres long, I guess, and I'd, I'd just jog up and down that um, for 40, 45 minutes, an hour. When Ibrahim came in, the others were also starting to run. I remember Ibrahim had lost a lot of the fitness that he originally had, but he wanted to establish, again, a kind of rhythm, a kind of routine. And so I remember in the evenings for him, we we decided to to go through a sort of a a circuit um, and he would would lead that circuit for us in the evenings. just circuit training again, sit-ups, press-ups, um, squats, you know, again, the kinds of exercise you could do without having weights, without having a gym, a proper gym to work in. In prison, Ibrahim would talk about his life back in Ireland. He was a very strong, fit young man. Um, in Ireland, he was into MMA, mixed martial arts, uh, fighting. I remember seeing... Eventually, the, the, the authorities allowed the families to bring in some photographs, and I remember seeing some pictures of him back in Ireland. Um, you know, as a young guy with some girls, and you know, obviously out partying, having a good time. So he, I think, you know, he really welcomed having having the opportunity to to, to talk to someone like me. To Egypt next were charges. December first, twenty fourteen. Ibrahim Halawa's second trial date. A pattern of trial adjournments was beginning to emerge and each adjournment brought his story back into the news. He continued to write letters. Today, almost 500 people arrested during a military crackdown on protests last year face a mass trial and the prospect of death sentences. Among them, Irish teenager Ibrahim Halawa. Our reporter Jackie Fox spoke to some of his family in Dublin last night. I need all notes and all advices. I can't stay back another year. Make dua for me. I need it. Take care of yourself. Love you so much. Moi, Ibrahim. Samaya Halawa reading her brother Ibrahim's letter from prison in Cairo. Because of efforts made by the Australian embassy, inside the prison cell, Peter was given the luxury of some books which he was happy to share with Ibrahim. Ibrahim was was obviously very, very comfortable and very keen to get his hands on some of the books and I had a a ready supply of, of novels, of books on history, books on regional politics, um... And books on political philosophy and so on, books on, on, on Buddhism. Um, I remember actually 
I had quite a few books on Buddhism because Buddhism helped me a lot. Um, Ibrahim was very interested in exploring some of those theological ideas, and although he was a committed Muslim, he was still interested in understanding a bit more about some of the Buddhist theology, Buddhist ideas. Today the freedoms Ibrahim enjoyed when he shared a cell with Peter appear to have been curtailed. After 1,000 days in prison, the conditions that Ibrahim lives with are challenging for the now 20-year-old. As outlined in this letter published last week, During recess we go from a small cell to a longer cell, and this cell has metal bars and wires on top, not cement. It's 3 metres by 15 metres, and lasts two hours, though this differs in different prisons. Then we go back inside and get prison food that finds itself nowhere but the bin. For so long I haven't seen green. The beans here come uncooked, so I planted some of them in tissue. It was breathtaking to see green. We read, write and sing. I love to sing. I make them laugh. I'm known in prison to take anyone out of a bad, depressed mood. I share memories of Ireland. We share our funny love stories. We daydream. We look at family photos over and over and over again. That is some of a normal day. The not normal days are for another time. One of the more unusual differences between Ibrahim's case and Peter's case has been the role played by their families, and in particular, their fathers. Whilst members of both families have made numerous media appearances, Ibrahim's father, Imam Hussein Halawa, who is Ireland's most senior Muslim cleric, has been notably absent in his public support for his son. The reasons for this remain unclear. By comparison, the public support Peter received from his dad was critical in terms of how his story has been relayed. Almost immediately after his arrest, Juris Gresta made a plea on television for his son's release. To the Egyptian people and authorities, we respectfully but passionately and fervently insist that Peter is completely innocent of all the allegations and charges against him. He is the innocent victim of the challenging times that Egypt is living through. We offer them all our compassion and goodwill. We trust he will be judged by his measured and carefully considered reporting of the events as he saw them, as a highly seasoned and experienced international journalist, and as it went to air. Peter's family continued to articulate a neutral message that resonated. Please release our son, he's done no wrong. It was a message that got through to world leaders that included President Obama. The issue of the Al Jazeera journalists in Egypt, uh, we've been clear both publicly and privately that they should be released. Uh, and you know, we ha- have been troubled by uh, some of the laws that have been passed around the world. By contrast, Ibrahim's pleas for freedom were muddied by accusations that the Halawa family had links with the Muslim Brotherhood, who were now branded a terrorist organisation. This link has been denied by the Halawa family. Yet these accusations have shaped perspectives on Ibrahim's case. 
Uh, why did these Irish passport holders, asks Kate, choose to consort with Islamic terrorists? Uh, Michael says, is this what I'm paying my licence fee for? RTE now a spokesperson for the Muslim Brotherhood, an organisation akin to neo-Nazis. Uh, Jim and Tullamore says, I have a certain sympathy for this family and the suppression of democracy, but it's believed that the Muslim Brotherhood, after getting into power themselves, were trying to turn Egypt into another Iran. And, uh, says, many Christians while I have sympathy for the Egyptian family, somebody else says, I have to question why they became involved in a demonstration. Please question Muslim leaders on their attitude to Christianity. They were given the opportunity. Ibrahim and Peter spent Christmas Day together in 2014. For Ibrahim, it was a warm reminder of his life back in Ireland. I was very keen to to have some kind of Christmas dinner. (laughs) Don't ask me how, but my family managed to convince the prison authorities to bring me in a bag of lamb (laughs) and and, and we managed to cook that. Um, I remember we we made quite a bit of effort to to create a really delicious leg of roast, leg of lamb and and, um, we cooked some some vegetables and so on that we were able to to get in. Again, my family were able to convince the prison authorities that this was an important occasion and, and again, bear in mind that Christmas for Ibrahim is very much more a cultural phenomenon than more than it is a religious one as a, as a Muslim. But I remember him getting quite quite um, nostalgic about Christmas in Ireland, about um, you know Christmas carols around Christmas decorations and so on, uh, Christmas traditions. Um, even though they weren't part of his his own family, it, it was very much a part of the thing that he he loved and and, and remembered about Ireland. By January 2015, the campaign for Peter's release by his family and the wider media seemed to be making inroads and there was further talk of a decree that could lead to the journalist's release. To date, Ibrahim's trial has been adjourned 13 times. Back in January 2015, it was adjourned for just the third time. But even then, it was beginning to have an effect on Ibrahim. What was his mood like when he'd return? from those the Germans? Oh, always frustrated, always quite depressed. Um, he felt that the Irish government needed to be a lot more active, a lot more forceful in the way, a lot more assertive in the way that they were dealing with the Egyptian authorities rather than simply telling the Egyptians that they, it was OK for them to allow the judicial process to take its course. You know, he saw that we were that our case, even though it was moving for us agonisingly slowly, at least it was moving. Um, the trial had gone through and, and we'd been convicted and sentenced and then we had lodged our appeal. And so there was a process with series of steps that he could see. For Ibrahim, every single time he was called to court, it was adjourned. Every single time. On the 1st of February 2015... Peter Gresta was released after 400 days in prison. His story began to symbolise something more. Like Ibrahim, he too had written a letter from prison, one that was now being read out all over the world. Writing from prison, Peter Gresta said, our arrest does not seem to be about work at all. It seems to be about staking out what the government here seems to consider normal and acceptable. Anyone who applauds the state is seen as safe and deserving of liberty. Anything else is a threat that needs to be crushed. 
After his release, Peter flew to Cyprus and then Australia. There, he was reunited with his family. Six months later, in July 2015, an unverified YouTube video appeared online. Shot inside the mosque on the day Ibrahim was arrested in August 2013. It shows him speaking on the phone and surrounded by a group of young men. It's a picture of mayhem. Back in Ireland, we, we don't have this. We don't have, we don't have any of this that's happening here. We, people are killing us. Imagine the army and the cops working together with the thugs to leave us at the door and, and in a mosque. They have us surrounded in a mosque to kill us. Ibrahim talks about democratic freedoms in Ireland. This is not fair. This is not humanity that we've been living for. This is not what back in Ireland what we want. Back in Ireland, we have this. Back in Ireland, a dog has more freedom than we have here. Ibrahim talks about Ireland being his country, about Egypt being his country. I came back from my country, the country I live in, to come back here and stay here and give us and stay with my family here because this is my country. I want what's happening back in Ireland to happen back here, down here. About the possibility of being shot dead inside the mosque. Everyone's willing to give themselves until the last bullet. We are last willing to give our life for any, any price, because this is now an Islamic matter. The elements that continue to divide public opinion on Ibrahim's case are elements that Peter Gresta is only too well aware of. You know, people joining the dots at home will say, here's a guy who travelled with intent to protest, who sees himself as an Egyptian national, more than an Irish national. And why should the Irish government intervene on his behalf. Ibrahim Halawa has been denied due process. He has been denied an opportunity to defend himself in court. He's been held without trial for more than two years. There has never been any evidence presented to show that he was involved in anything other than a peaceful protest. People can join the dots however they want, but the fact is that there is no evidence. The fact is that his rights as a detainee, have been violated. Even under Egyptian law, they've been violated. ...that the Egyptian authorities say he is accused of. Well, first of all, we don't know what um, yeah, he's going to be tried on. In August 2015, Pat Breen TD visited Egypt. He was then chairman of the Joint Committee of Irish Foreign Affairs and Trade. He met with the Egyptian government before visiting Ibrahim and reported back to Mary Wilson on drive time. I, I, I understand what you're saying, Deputy Breen, but a simple, question to, a simple question to the Foreign Minister. What is Ibrahim Halawa, uh, an Irish citizen, charged with in your country? Well, of course, that's a matter for the Ministry for the Interior, not the Foreign Minister. Maybe there's questions I can ask tomorrow. Will you ask um, but obviously them? Oh, I will ask whatever questions are needed. And I think that's because of my meetings were very open and, um, you know, and very friendly today. And I think quite diplomacy, Mary, is still the way forward here. Um, you know, we have to we have to accept now uh, that the trial will happen. When? And I think a lot, a lot can, well, it's, as you know, it's, it's been postponed for the eighth time now. I, I know. The trial will happen in the first week of October. But will it? We're hoping that... Well, we're hoping it will. Obviously, as I said, the system there is very You know, the, 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 the saying, justice, well, you know. just, justice delayed is justice denied. Well, this is Egypt, Mary. This is not at home in Ireland. It's a very different environment, a very challenging environment. Only last week, you knew you, 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 a Croatian. In this complicated and nuanced story, the only thing that remains certain is that Ibrahim Halawa 
has spent more than 1,000 days in prison without trial. His case might not have received the same attention as Peter Gresta's. And as Brian O'Connell reported last year, there might be an obvious reason why. There's a sort of an elephant in the room here, Sean, when we talk about his case. And somebody remarked to me yesterday, a taxi driver actually, who'd picked me up from the house, and he said, I think if his name was Sean McDermott from Fairhouse, there'd be a different reaction from the Irish government. Now, that's an accusation the Irish government would strongly deny. But there is that feeling that somehow Ibrahim's case isn't being pushed the way it would have been pushed if it was somebody else born in the coom, as we know, a 19-year-old Irish citizen who has, there's been no proof of the charges levied against him. I met another sister of his, Omaima. Last Monday, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Charlie Flanagan, addressed Ibrahim's upcoming 14th court appearance on June 29th. The trial date is on the 29th of June, uh, and I would expect uh, that there will be developments in the hearing on that date. Uh, and my priority is, uh, and we are deploying every effort by way of diplomatic engagement, contact with ministers um, at the very highest level uh, in Egypt. Uh, but I cannot determine uh, when a case in an Egyptian court is to be concluded, uh, although my expectations are uh, that June the 29th will be a key date in that regard. Charlie Flanagan, thanks indeed for taking our call this morning. On June 2nd, a statement from the Department of Foreign Affairs revealed that Irish embassy officials had made more than 50 visits to Ibrahim since his arrest in August 17, 2013. Ibrahim's story is not over. What happens on his trial date remains to be seen. What do you think the future holds for Ibrahim Halawa? It can't go on forever, but equally, it's very difficult to see the point at which this might finally come to a close. This story ultimately centres around a legal case and due process. Why, after more than three years, has Ibrahim not stood trial, allowing his case to move on? Identity remains at the very heart of this story. I think his relationship with Ireland was, was complex. It was, it was at times conflicted. Part of the conflict for Ibrahim, I think, came from a sense that he belonged to Ireland more than Ireland felt he belonged to them. I think he really struggled with that. I think in a lot of ways he felt abandoned, by, particularly by the Irish government, and he often spoke about the democratic values of, of Ireland and the contrast between the way Ireland works um, as a democracy, the rule of law and so on, and the way that Egypt works, you know. I think he felt that, that the Taoiseach should have been doing more, should have been much more public in his, in his conversations with the Egyptian authorities, with the Egyptian president, with Sisi. He clearly felt that that the Irish authorities weren't weren't pulling their weight. When was your last contact? Oh, the day I walked out of prison. Um, it came as a complete surprise, and I had only about half an hour to get my stuff together, to say goodbye to Ibrahim and the boys. But when I told them, they were all overjoyed. They were all really, really happy, you know, high-fiving and embracing me all very happy to see to see me go to see me win my freedom and and hopeful that that, that would also show I mean that, that some good news wasn't wasn't far away for them on the day that I walked out 
Abraham, like everybody, was, was just really happy that one of us was being given his freedom. <laughs>